Today, we're talking about being a silent partner, buying a business, and the danger of getting into business with people. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, uh, today I've got a great video that was inspired in part by a comment that was left under one of my other videos. Uh, which I would encourage you to do, leave comments under my videos. And uh, this is one of the ways that I generate ideas about what new videos to create. So um, viewer uh, who goes by the, the handle of Everything by John left a comment. He was watching the video I made called Fastest Way to $500,000 Income. Uh, and we'll put a link to that here. Um, and the comment was, excellent video. What do you think is more efficient and profits you the fastest? buying businesses or becoming the silent partner. Now, I have made other videos before about being a partner, uh, providing money to someone buying a business. Uh, in fact, I believe there's a playlist about equity investing, both from the point of view of raising funds through finding equity investors and being the equity investor. So you might wanna check out that content. Um, but um, I wanna answer this question because I've lately been getting several people that have been booking private calls with me to ask about being an investor in someone else's deal, uh, someone who's trying to buy a business. And it, it's very interesting. And so on top of this, over the weekend, uh, I was driving in a part of the city that I, I rarely go into. And I just happened to drive by a particular house that brought up all kinds of memories from, from about you know 15 years ago. So I'm going to tell you the story today, everyone, about Mrs. Wilson. And it's a great story. And like all good stories, it has multiple chapters. So let me bring us back in time to uh, 2006. So 2006 is around the time when I, it's when I left my career at the Yellow Pages. And I started a business with a partner. And uh, what we did is we created a junk removal business. So we advertised, we had a truck that would lift up and dump out at the landfill, and we had all kinds of advertising going on. And so we would go to people's homes and we would empty out, um, you know, their basements or their garage or what have you. So, so this is the business we were doing and we got into business and, you know, everything was, was going just the way you might imagine with any business startup and we were meeting new clients, et cetera. So one day we get a call from a house. And it's a lady who says, we've been renovating our new home. Uh, we have a whole pile of like construction debris and stuff and the garbage man wouldn't take it, which they wouldn't here. So I said, yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly the kind of stuff we do all the time. So we drove by and this is when I met Mrs. Wilson. So Mrs. Wilson said to me that she was a real estate investor and that she would buy a house live in it for a year while she renovated it, and then she would sell the house. So here in Canada, if you sell your primary residence, uh, you don't pay any tax on capital gains in the primary residence. And so this strategy that she explained to me is one that I've heard 
dozens and dozens of times. Many people do this, right? And so they'll they'll live in the house, they'll fix it up, and um, you know they're you to put the whole tax thing to the side. Uh, it wasn't an uncommon story. So we loaded up the truck with the junk, and her bill came to just under two hundred dollars. So we presented her with the invoice, you know, and she said, well, would we, would you take a check? And so back in those days, quite a few people would pay us by check. And we had by that point in time accepted, you know, maybe a hundred personal checks from people and never had a problem with any of them. So I said, yeah, we'll take a check. So she writes a check. And then, uh, you know, later that week I made my bank deposit. So all the checks and things, we put them into the bank machine and everything was, was just fine. And then things just kept rolling with the business. And about two weeks later, we get uh, an, a, a piece of mail from the bank. And what it is, is it's a returned check because the check didn't clear, it bounced. And back in those days, what the bank would do is they would actually send you the actual check uh, because you had some options. You could you know, take it back to the customer, you could ask for a replacement check, or according to the check clearing rules at the time here in Canada, uh, you could take a bounce check and you could go to the bank and pay a third party certification fee and have the check certified. So if there was sufficient money at a later date, you could go to the bank and get and get the check certified. So I called up Mrs. Wilson on the phone and left a voicemail for her. And over the course of about a week, I called her maybe four or five times, uh, leaving messages. She never called me back, right? And that's, you know, when I started to think, you know, maybe this person knows that I'm chasing them for money. Maybe this person doesn't want to honor their check. So you could do this, uh, like, I forget exactly what it was. It was like star something, star and two numbers, and it would it would disguise your caller ID. So I did that and I called her up and she answered the phone, right? And I said, uh, Mrs. Wilson, it's David uh, from Junk Away. And I'm calling because uh, the bank returned the check that you gave me. It wasn't a good check. And she she says to me, oh, you know what? Um, that's, that's awful. Uh, you know, what would you like to do? And I said, well, why don't you write out a new check? and just leave it in your mailbox in an envelope with my name on it. And I'll stop by sometime tomorrow and just pick it up from your house, right? I just wanted to make it easy. I knew that I would be in that part of town. And so the next day I go by and of course I stop and I look in the mailbox and there's nothing there, right? So then I start the, the phone voicemail tag game again and I have to do the same star thing and, and she answers the phone. You see, when she can't see that it's me, she answers the phone, right? So I know she's trying to dodge me. and. And I get her on the phone and she says, oh, oh, shoot. You know what? Yes, that's right. You told me to leave it in the mailbox. I forgot. I mailed it to you. And I said, you mailed it to me. And she said, yeah, I, I forgot that you told me to leave it in the mailbox. I wrote the new check and I mailed it to you. And I said, where exactly did you mail it? And she said, well, to your address. And I was like, which address is that? Right? Because I'm, I'm trying to press her on details. And she says, it's the address on the receipt that you left with me. And here's the rub because our receipts did not have our mailing address on them. And I said to her, uh, Mrs. Wilson, our receipts don't have our mailing address. So you're lying to me. What's going on? And she hung up. Now, that's the end of chapter one. So basically, I was left with this decision. 
what what am I going to do to chase a debt under two hundred dollars? Now, <clears throat> I missed the money because our little junk removal business, you know, a good day for us was maybe twelve or fourteen hundred dollars income. The average day for us was nine hundred to a thousand dollars of total sales. So two hundred was certainly an amount of money that that hurt. I mean, that was. Uh, almost payroll for the day for two people in the truck, right? And so time went on, right? Chapter one's over. Chapter two, I get a call from a new lady. And this lady calls me up and says, hey, um, we're doing a cleanup at a house and we have a whole bunch of like construction debris and all this kind of stuff that the garbage man won't take, right? Same thing, okay? And she says, can you come by and take care of this for me? And I'm like, sure, that's what we do. And she gives me the address and it's the same house. So I'm interested now. So we drive over there and it's a different lady. It's not Mrs. Wilson, it's a different lady. And so the, I said, you know what? We were here a few months ago and we cleaned up a bunch of drunk and the lady wrote us a check and it bounced. Before we load this truck, we need to know who you are and what's going on. So the lady, and I forget her name, We'll call her Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith recounts to me this how she ended up dealing with Mrs. Wilson. Apparently, Miss, the house was up for sale. Mrs. Wilson approached them saying, you know, I'm a real estate investor. They made an offer through a real estate agent and they were going to have a closing on the house. And then at the final hour, just before the closing, there was some kind of delay in the financing that Mrs. Wilson had arranged for the house. And so Mrs. Wilson went to the seller, Mrs. Smith, and said, here's the deal. Um, the financing has been delayed. We can only close on the mortgage next week. But the timing was like end of month. And she said, but we have to be out of our apartment. We're going to be homeless for four days. Is there any way that we might be able to move in uh, just before the closing gets completed? And Mrs. Smith agreed and let Mrs. Wilson move in. So what then happened, of course, is that the financing for the house purchase never materialized, right? And so Mrs. Smith is telling me this story, right? About how now she's got Mrs. Wilson and her family living in the house, the deal hasn't closed, and she hasn't been paid for the house. And Mrs. Wilson's in there hiring me and writing bad checks, right? And so what, what, that then here where we live in New Brunswick, there's this government department called the Office of the Reynoldsman, and they manage things between tenants and landlords, like leases and, you know, if there is a dispute or someone needs to be evicted or something like that. So Mrs. Smith goes to the Reynoldsman and says, I've got someone living in my house, but they, you know, they're not paying rent. They're not supposed to be there. And the Reynoldsman's like, well, where's your lease? And she said, well, I don't have a lease. I've got a purchase, you know, an offer to purchase and sale or a purchase and sale agreement or whatever. And the Reynoldsman says, well, we can't help you evict this person because as far as we're concerned, she's not a tenant. You, you have a contract dispute. This is a civil law thing. You need to get a lawyer and maybe sue her. They're like, we don't, we don't do that, right? So Mrs. Wilson and her family ended up living in the house for eight months without paying any rent and without having paid for the house in this legal limbo between being a tenant and being a, a purchaser, all the while, you know, 
talking about how she was a real estate investor. She was going to flip the house and maybe she was trying to sell the house to someone else, but she didn't own it. Um, she certainly ripped me off. And so eventually the Mrs. Smith is successful in getting rid of Mrs. Wilson. And apparently the renovations that Mrs. Wilson and her family started were just, you know, very amateurish and not professional and, and basically had to be all torn out, uh, whatever efforts they'd made. And then we got hired to come and clean it up again. And of course, uh, we insisted that Mrs. Smith pay us with a credit card rather than a check. But but that was chap that's chapter two. Okay. So now we know more about Mrs. Wilson. Now I got out of the junk removal business. And if you've ever listened to some of my historic, you know, my videos where I talk about my own background, I got out of it and I became a finance broker. And so I was working with small business owners to help them secure uh, debt, operating capital. Uh, I was helping them secure lines of credit, operating and capital leases, uh, factoring facilities, et cetera. So working with different business owners. One day I get a call from a lady who wants to buy a campground in Prince Edward Island. Okay. And so I'm like, oh yeah, well, I can, I can totally help you with that. And so I asked her a few details, you know, where's the campground? What's the size of the property? You know, do you have financial statements, et cetera? Okay, great. Uh, what's your name and phone number? Well, guess what? It, it's Mrs. Wilson, right? Mrs. Wilson's calling me up looking for my help to, to finance this campground. So now I immediately, I'm like, oh, this is the Mrs. Wilson that owes me $200. So I think to myself, I wonder what she's up to. So I'm just, I'm listening, I'm playing along and I tell her that I need to call a few of my lenders and then I'll get back to her. So a couple of days later, I call her back, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think I'm making good headway. I think that, you know, this is something that we might be able to do. Now, listen very carefully, everybody. So what she says then is she says, well, as soon as you know that you might be able to get some kind of financing, even if it hasn't been approved, I need a letter from you saying that you think the deal is financeable because I have some partners who are putting up part of the down payment. And I understand that I have to have the money in my own bank account for 90 days to season it and prove that I have the down payment to the lender. Right. And so now Mrs. Wilson is looking for me to write some kind of letter and potentially even speak to these investors so that they will write checks to her to put in her bank account to facilitate the purchase of this campground, okay? So there was no way I was gonna do anything like that, right? Because I immediately understood what she was doing, potentially. I don't, I like, and I don't know if she really was just a crazy person or out of touch with reality that she actually was living in this imaginary world where she thought that she was doing these deals. But basically, if I had written such a letter and these investors had called to confirm with me, they would have given this woman, Mrs. Wilson, with the track record we know, money, potentially $100,000 to put in her bank account for seasoning before you know, the campground deal was going to go down. Of course, she could have just taken off with the money, right? And so that's the end of chapter three. And that's, and that's the end of the story, really. Because here's what I want to talk to you guys about today. And it gets back to John's question about whether or not you should be a, a, you should buy businesses or you should be a silent partner. 
over the last couple of weeks, I've actually had two different calls with people who have called me up asking for my help to analyze business purchase transactions, not because they were buying businesses themselves, but because they had been invited to be these silent partners putting up part of the down payment to buy these businesses. Okay. And so in both cases, people were focused on the deal. Like, do the numbers make sense? Does the purchase price make sense? Does the amount of down payment and all this kind of stuff make sense in both cases? But when they started talking on the phone with me and I understood what kind of situation they were in, I shifted the focus of the whole conversation away from the deal and to the person and how they met the person. Because if you're going to be a partner in a deal and you're you're basically going to be putting up cash for someone else to buy a business and that other person is the deal maker, they're the buyer, they're maybe they're going to be the operator, et cetera, then that's a whole other level of due diligence and analysis that has to be done, not on the deal, but rather on the person that you're getting into business with. So I've actually got another story that I can tell about a client of mine who got into business with someone who showed them that they had the licensing rights for this. Um, uh, it was like a, a talk or, or a contamination remediation system, a new technology license from a company in Scandinavia somewhere. And he was like, I've got an opportunity to get this contract to do this cleanup. And it was all about putting these rods in the ground and running this current through the rods that pulsed at certain it pulsed at certain oscillation frequencies. It was all very technical, of course. And then the guy was like, I've got this opportunity to roll this out. And we have a few test sites. And if everything goes well with the test sites, then we potentially could be getting a contract with Suncor out in Alberta to like clean up tar sand sites or something like this, like this multi-billion dollar potential project. And, and my client was like, this is great. And the guys put like $40,000, $50,000 into this thing without ever investigating the guy who came forward with it. And again, turned out to be a con man, like total ripoff, just like Mrs. Wilson. So I don't want you guys to be afraid of everyone in the world of business. We exist in a very high trust society. West, you know, Modern Western countries are trust economies. So much business is done where people do services or ship products to people and send them an invoice. And they know that almost all the time they're going to get paid for it eventually, right? But there are these unscrupulous operators out there. And you do have to be aware that sometimes you may deal with somebody who is not an honest operator. Or what's worse, people who believe that they're honest operators, but they're just incompetent or incapable of actually delivering on what it is that they're promising to you. So in one of the cases of these two recent phone calls, I was speaking with a gentleman. He met somebody online in an online community of people who are all talking about buying businesses. Okay. And so he was approached by this guy saying, I have an opportunity to buy this business. And it was like a, a million dollar EBITDA cash flowing business that they were going to buy for $4 million. And they needed a couple hundred thousand dollars as a down payment. And they were going to use an SBA loan for the, for the difference. And so they were looking for investors to put in part of the money. And this guy I was speaking to on the phone was, was thinking about putting $200,000 into this deal in exchange for some of the equity. And so 
he he called me because he wanted my opinion on the deal. And I said, well, let's back up. Let's talk about your deal as an investor. Let's talk about who this deal maker is. You know, are they experienced in this industry? Do they know this? Do they know that? Do they know? And the guy knew nothing about the person putting the deal together, basically. It was a stranger he met on the internet. And now he's thinking about giving the stranger $200,000. And then I asked him a few questions about himself. I said, great, what's your personal net worth? Well, what do you mean? I'm like, what is the total value of your assets minus liabilities? And we ended up doing it on the phone. And the guy's total net worth was under half a million dollars. And he was thinking about basically putting the $200,000 of liquid money he had into this deal with a guy he didn't know, right? And I know that when I share it in this way to you guys, after telling you the story, Mrs. Wilson, your, your head's spinning thinking, oh my God, you know, that's, why would somebody do that? Like there are rules <clears throat> when you, when you make a private investment in a deal like this, uh, you're purchasing what's called a non-marketable security. And what that means is that you invest in this shares or whatever it is you're buying. There's no market for that. There's no stock market where you can go and resell them or anything like that. And so when it comes to those investments, there are certain rules. And if you've ever heard the term accredited investor, basically the, the government agencies that, that monitor this stuff have a series of rules that in order to buy that kind of investment, you have to have a certain net worth or a certain income. And the, the qualifying definition of accredited investor varies depending on the jurisdiction that you live in, either state, province, or, or country. And so this guy would not have met the qualification as an accredited investor. He he didn't have the income or the net worth to meet that definition. But the person trying to put together the deal never stopped to even look at that, right? He he was like, I want somebody to put up money. And then he was pressuring this guy to write the check into the entity he had created, uh, the corporation that he had set up because the corporation was going to be the buyer. The corporation had to have the down payment. And so the guy was feeling the pressure to put up the money. And this is when he went to, to try to figure out if it was a good deal or not. And he found me thinking I would help him analyze the business. But that's, I'm, I'm glad he called because that's not what he needed. He needed to have a little bit of a wake up call about the type of transaction he was about to enter into and, and the, just the dangers that he was facing. So, you know, I explained to the guy, you're about to put all of your liquid wealth into something that you're not legally qualified to buy. The government doesn't want you doing that. And you're, and then we find out that the, the person who's buying <laughs> doesn't have any experience in the industry. No, th this is the plan. Okay. And this is, I know a very common strategy people talk about online. This guy wants to put the deal together and then hire an operator to run the business while he in fact doesn't know the industry or have any experience in the industry either. So neither of these two guys understand the business and they think that they're going to raise the money, do the deal and then hire someone else to run it. And for those of you who are experienced in business, who, who've got some background and realize what the day-to-day -day of running a business is like, um, you're, you're probably thinking, oh my God, like how could somebody do this? But the reality is, is that the topic of buying a business, the entrepreneurship through acquisition, it is growing in popularity in the online space and more and more and more people who are genuinely naive to the world of business are being drawn into this, not because they have a burning desire or passion about business or an interest in business or have been lifelong entrepreneurs, but they think that it's some kind of way 
to get a better yield or to do more with their money or to profit or have passive income. This leads me back to John's comment. Excellent video. What do you think is more efficient and profiting the fastest? Buying businesses or becoming the silent partner? Honestly, guys, if you're going to get into small business, it's the riskiest asset class that exists. Okay. So many things can happen in business that you cannot foresee that could like destroy a business. Even enduringly profitable businesses with 30 year track records could be out of business within a year if certain things beyond the control of the owner were to happen. Things that might have to do with government regulation, changes in the general economy, changes you know, with competition, um, something as banal as a city taking six months to replace water and sewer in front of the business could destroy the business that's been around for 30 years. I've seen it happen. Okay. So people are, uh, they're focusing on the money, they're focusing on the profits, and that should not be the focus. In general, I would say that if you're going to get into investing in small businesses, you should have some kind of small business background. You should have an understanding of, of knowing what is going on in the business that you're investing in. If you don't understand what it is that you're investing in, then really you're just kind of being speculative. You're just putting your money in and hoping that everything works out. And to put your money into something, being you know, to put your money into you know a bus being driven by some other person and not taking the time to truly investigate that other person is just another even higher order magnitude of stress or risk that you're taking. And so I hope today's story uh, can open your eyes a little bit to some of the real dangers that exist out there. There are nefarious characters out there that are plotting to steal your money. There are people out there who are generally genuinely ill that believe that they are doing something that they cannot do, that they're, they're not qualified to do, that they can never in a million years pay off, but they genuinely, honestly believe that they are doing this deal or doing this thing. And they could be very convincing in talking with you about how they're going to execute. And so if you want to get into investing, there's a whole world out there about investing. And you can put your money into things that have a long track record. You can, you know, if you want to invest in business, there's publicly traded companies that have various ways that you can exit from if things go poorly. You know, you can sell your stock on a stock exchange, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can be investing with people that have real management backgrounds and histories with the companies that you can investigate, you know, who's the CEO of the big company or whatever. In the world of small business, you really should have an idea of operational stuff. You should know how business functions. You should know how you're going to peek over the shoulder of, of management and see what's going on in that business. Um, you should be involved to a certain extent. And I know I've talked about this before. I think that if you're going to invest in the world of small business, you should have something to contribute in addition to your cash, something insightful that can be helpful to the entrepreneur. And you need to know who that entrepreneur is. So, so often we hear about people saying that, you know, when they made an investment in a small business, they weren't really investing in the business. They were investing in the person because they knew the person, they knew what the person was capable of, and they knew that the person was going to fight hard and work hard and, and achieve those things. Man, you do not make those kinds of judgment calls about a person that you met online and you've known for a few weeks. 
those types of relationships tend to be very long. Like you know the person for years, you've seen how they've handled stress, you've seen how they've handled ups and downs, you've seen what their accomplishments are, and, and you've seen how they've acted in the face of adversity. Because when things are going well, you know, a lot of people can look like heroes. It's when people, it's when things go poorly that you really learn, you know, what's going on with someone. Anyway, if uh, if you're serious about this world of small business and you want to, you know, get into business, then uh, head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com. Uh, that's where you can learn about all of the different products and services that I offer uh, to help people in the world of of buying a business. And I'd be more than happy to help you out and uh, and to spend time with you and and hopefully help you avoid a bad deal. Because at the end of the day, that's my mission. And with that, we'll say, see you later. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos, all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you.